Okay, question for this afternoon. It's one of those questions which I think it really doesn't matter um, whether you are coming from the point of view of skepticism. Maybe you're coming from the point of view of skepticism this afternoon. Uh, and you're thinking, I, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of the Christian faith, but to be perfectly honest, the Bible, the idea of, uh, of one book, one authority, is a bit too much of a challenge to me. I, I'm finding that a problem. Uh, therefore, I want to just address that uh, to some extent. At the same time, if you're coming from that perspective, that's fine. If you're coming from the perspective of, well, I am a Christian. I, I, I know that I am a follower of Jesus. I believe in the Lord Jesus. I believe in the Bible. But, you know, I, over these past years, there's been a number of occasions when people have asked me questions or said certain things uh, regarding the Bible. And it's just, it's just made me think. Uh, and maybe you would find this particular question helpful to add to the armory uh, of, of thoughts and um, ideas that you were prepared for to give an account uh, for the faith that you have. And uh, that's part of why we do this. This is a great opportunity to, to just think about some of the questions that very often we don't, don't get the chance to ask, in, if you like, in normal uh, church life. Well, the Christian faith demands that we believe in the Bible, which is a big problem for many. I guess the, for some it's the idea that this book down through the centuries from their perspective has been used as, as if you like, a weapon of power, and it has. If you look down through the history of the church, I would say that there are many reasons why you might be able to say, uh, and I would support you with the idea, that the church has acted more from the desire to be politically uh, powerful in the world rather than as what we are called to do to be those who share the good news about Jesus. It's inevitable, therefore, that if the church at times, I speak about the wider church down through the centuries, if the church at times has failed and has done that kind of thing, isn't it inevitable, therefore, that the Bible is going to be sucked into that failing idea and that failing process? And therefore, there would be many of people who would say, well, well the Bible is just being used as a political weapon as, and as a, a kind of a tool of power down through the centuries. Therefore, I can't believe it. Alternatively, the, the, there would be some who would say, you know, I can't believe the Bible because uh, from my point of view, uh, as I look at it, it just seems to be so unreliable. Uh, I look at it and from my point of view and from what I've heard of, it seems as though it's just gone through constant changes. We can't really be sure of what it says. It's been manipulated down through the centuries. It's, if it has been used uh, as a weapon of political power, how can we ever trust it? How can we know that it is even what was originally written? Well, I think both of those are things that we, we really need to be thinking of and addressing uh, as we work through this question. The first thing is to just stop and think just for a few minutes, uh, about the uniqueness of the Bible. It is an astoundingly unique book. Unlike any other book uh, is the way that you could describe the Bible. The first thing that you would say 
we might say about the Bible is it's been written by uh, over 40 authors. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, one book that has been written by over 40 authors. We say that because, yes, although it is for most of us a book contained uh, within covers, it's actually uh, 66 different books, 40 different authors. It was written in 13 different countries on three different continents. It's amazing, isn't it? Africa, Asia, Europe is where the Bible was written. It was written in three different languages. Hebrew, a very small part of the Bible was written in Aramaic and in Greek. And it was written over 1,600 years. <laughs> Those different facts about the Bible make it pretty unique, don't they? Unlike any other book, 40 writers, 13 countries, three continents, three languages over 1,600 years. Do you remember as a kid, if you ever played the game, uh, we used to play it by folding up paper. And uh, you used to write uh, a line of a story. Uh, and then you'd fold it away so that it was hidden. Uh, or the, the previous lines were hidden. All you got was the last line. Uh, and you'd add another little bit to the story because all you could see is the last line. And then you'd kind of unfold it and you'd have this mishmash of a bizarre story that was kind of constructed by people only being able to see the last line. You know, the Bible, in lots of ways, was written <laughs> in that way. It was written by different people in different places. In fact, it was only brought together sometime during the time of the early church, gathered together. And yet what we find is not a mishmash of different ideas and conflicting elements. What we find is a cohesive, consistent story. That's even more remarkable, isn't it, when you think about the other factors. It wasn't a group of people sat around in a room with a piece of paper in front of them where they could all share the writing of a story. It was over 1,600 years for a start, with many different writers in different places at different times. It's an incredible thing. Ian McKellen, uh, Gandalf, to many of us, he said, um, I've often believed the Bible should have a disclaimer on the front saying this is fiction. <laughs> it's a powerful statement that he makes there, isn't it? One of the things that I would often say when people talk about fiction and it's, and it's inconsistent and it doesn't hold together, one of the things I would always challenge you by saying is this. Have you ever read it? Or alternatively, please show me the inconsistencies. Because it's one of those things that just kind of drifts into folklore, isn't it? Lots of those ideas. Yeah, it's inconsistent. Well, well let, let's sit down and talk about some of the inconsistencies. I'd love to talk to Ian McAllen, who believes it's a, a work of fiction. Because if it is a work of fiction, it is the most incredible, miraculous work of fiction ever written in the history of the world, given some of the facts that we've just been able to share. 
one of the other things that we've seen is that over time and over history, on many occasions, the Bible has been debunked because, if you like, historical discoveries have proved the Bible to be wrong in the eyes of certain people. For many years, in fact, for centuries and centuries, the Bible was ridiculed because nobody could find any other reference to Ur of the Chaldees, a place recorded in the Old Testament. In fact, the place where Abraham came from. In 1923, Ur of the Chaldees was discovered. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? And so, all of a sudden... It's not the Bible that has to be rewritten and rethought out. It's the whole of history that has to be rethought out. I watched a fascinating uh, series of programs a couple of years ago by a guy who's not a Christian, so he's got no axe to grind whatsoever. His name's David Roll. He's an Egyptologist, studies uh, particularly the history of Egypt. One of the problems with Egyptian history from a biblical point of view is that it doesn't match up. The history, according to the studies and the, the kind of the, the aficionados of, of the history of Egypt, doesn't match the history of the Bible. David Roll, who is not a Christian, looked at the history of the Bible and treated the Bible like so many other historians. He treated it as a historical record and he valued it as a historical record. What he went away and did was he started to consider, is is it possible that this historical record is accurate and lots of other historical records are inaccurate? What he began to discover from his point of view is that there are problems in the historical picture that is accepted for Egypt outside of the Bible. He identified a couple of areas, particularly where kings who were believed to be reigning uh, uh, in uh, Syria, one after the other, actually he found that they were reigning in parallel. There were two kingdoms. What he found was that when you took that into account, the biblical history matched the newly established timeline. Isn't that remarkable? Here's a guy who's got no axe to grind. He's not trying to prove the Bible. He's treating it like any other historian. Another moment in time where history needs to be written, rewritten rather than the Bible needing to be rewritten. Fascinating, isn't it? What I would say, though, is that none of those reasons are reasons why we should accept the Bible in and of themselves There are much bigger reasons, I think, why we should look at the Bible as something which is worth considering. The the first is this. One of the problems that many people have with the Bible is that they think it's just a bunch of incoherent stories uh, that gives, if you like, power to those who want to rule over other people. It's just incoherent. It's just a gathering uh, of different stories. What we actually find consistently, right the way through the Bible, again and again and again, 
is that the Bible is surprising in its content. And it's surprising in its content because it is brutally honest. And it doesn't portray things in the way that uh, the, the, the culture of the day would have tried to portray things. Let me take you on a journey back to the ancient world. How would you describe your leader, your ruler? Actually, the way that you would have described your ruler is as virtually a deity. He would have been portrayed as somebody who was supreme because, after all, he's, he's worth following. You know, if you like, the marketing activity of the day was to prepare, or rather to portray, leaders as flawless people. People who never failed. People who were uniquely supreme and therefore worthy of being followed. That's how you would have seen leaders portrayed. Hmm. The Bible doesn't portray leaders like that at all. In fact, the Bible is painfully honest at times about the failures of those who are leading the people of God down through the centuries. Right the way back, we see messed up families. We see families, even the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Messed up families. Families that are dealing and fighting with, with conflict and with jealousy. People who are leading, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who are, who are leading in ways which are not exemplary. People who are making mistakes. People who are not portrayed as the best. Well, maybe you say, well, that, that was kind of just in the formative stages. Well, let's take a king. How do you portray a king in the ancient world as somebody who is perfect? How does the Bible portray King David? Well, actually, the Bible portrays King David as a great leader, yet a mess of a man. Isn't that remarkable? Brutally honest, real. It actually turns upside down the expected way of presenting the leaders of the day. David is described as somebody who steals somebody's wife, gets her pregnant, and then arranges for the murder of her husband. How to win? The support of your people? No. How to be honest about the mess of the human condition? You say, well, okay, maybe that's the Old Testament. What about moving forward? Maybe as we move into the New Testament, maybe it's a little bit different there. Well, actually, um, it, it just isn't. <laughs> One of the great heroes and champions of the church in the New Testament was Peter. How is Peter described? Peter is described as impulsive. Somebody who kind of opens his mouth to prepare space for his foot to go in it. The kind of person who, who, who shoots off with his mouth before he's thought about 
uh, the repercussions. And then, to cap it all, the champion of the church is described as somebody who turns his back on Jesus. Somebody who fails at the crucial moment. The Bible doesn't describe people, characters in the Bible, in quite the way that we would expect ancient writing to describe them. Why is that? Well, I I think it's actually because the Bible has a bigger purpose. The Bible has a purpose of, of holding a mirror up to you and me and showing to us the reality of the world that we live in and the reality of our own individual condition. And it's been able to do that from the very beginning, over 1,600 years of it being written, it has consistently been able to say to society, to cultures of the day, look at the reality of where we are. Look at what we're really like. And then to say to that culture, to say to us today, look at the truth. (laughs) Don't we need some help? Don't we need this resolving? You know, that's one of the things that the Bible is able to do again and again as you look at the way it's portrayed. Again and again and again, it holds this mirror up to the world in which we live in. And it says the way we are living is not right. The way that we are trying to order things is not consistent. In fact, we know that deep down ourselves, don't we? We know that we try to live in certain ways. We know that we want to do certain things. But we know that we can't even be honest and consistent to our own commitments. And the Bible says, yes, I know. (laughs) This is what we're like. You need help from outside. In fact, as we see the message of the Bible unfolding, we realize that that's exactly what it is. It's a picture of the world that we live in. But more than that, it's God's communication of how this world is from the very beginning to the very end. It's a cohesive picture of this world, our place in it, our issues that we face, and hope for us in this messed up condition. It's a cohesive picture of life. So, wow, that's, that's a pretty big claim. I thought that the Bible was just a kind of collection of moral ideas and thoughts Ways that maybe if we lived a little bit like this, we could live better. I've got to say that if that's all the Bible was, it would not be unique. There's lots of books out there that talk about how to live better. Down through the millennia, there's been different philosophies and ideas of how to live better. But this is the one book that suggests, plants in our minds thoughts that we live in a world which is not our own. We live in a world which is created 
by a God who is still engaged with this world. We live in a world where God is, through this book, communicating to us so that no matter where we are in the history of this world, God speaks. That's an amazing claim, isn't it? How can we say that that might be the case? I think one of the things that we find as we start to spend time studying the Bible is we begin to see that it is a series of stepping stones, if you like, a tapestry that spans the history of time. It is God's perspective, God's communication of how this world began, how we've developed, how we've got to the place we are, but more than that, what is going to happen from here until the point where this world ends. And amazingly, at any point in that process, God is speaking. God is speaking in different ways, in in ways that were right for the world that was at that time. Let, Let me describe it like this. One of the big problems that many people have is the sheer brutality, it seems, of the Old Testament. People being killed, people who, where, where one little nation rises above and kind of wins the battle uh, against other big nations. Isn't, isn't that a terrible thing? Well, I guess in lots of ways, in today's society, yes. But then, isn't it amazing that God was willing to stoop down and to speak to a world in a way that that world was able to understand? In fact, in ways that that world was only able to understand. In a world which was taken up with power. In in an undeveloped world where military conflict was was a a kind of a statement of whether your God was worthy of being followed in a way where people only understood the power of the sword. We see that against all odds, a tiny, weak, little nation rises to proclaim that God exists. We might not like it. We might find that hard to come to terms with. But the amazing thing is, as we read in the Old Testament, we read that there were nations and there were leaders who looked on at this little nation and they weren't horrified by what they saw. They saw that there was a God who was bigger, who was behind this. They understood that that God was willing to communicate. God is not a God who stands back and doesn't allow himself to engage in the reality of this world. He does. And sometimes that is messy. Sometimes that is dirty. And yet he does. But he doesn't stand back, does he? Because right at the very center of the message of the Bible, the very purpose of it is to proclaim in preparation for 
and to declare afterwards one event. The life of one man. His name was Jesus. He was born the son of a carpenter, the daughter of a peasant girl. And yet from the very first time, that that first moment where he came into this world, miraculous events were declaring his presence. Events which were declaring to this world, this is none less than the Son of God who has come into the world. That's at the very center of the Bible. That man who came into the world came in to declare to this world that the God who this book declares and proclaims and reveals is a God who is passionately concerned about this world, but not from a distance. A God who is willing to stoop down, to immerse himself, and then to become one who is destroyed and broken and have all of his friends and his followers desert him, to be totally abandoned, and then to be unjustly accused and killed. How willing is God to get involved in the dirty, messy events in this world? He's that willing. He's willing that he doesn't step away from it and shout from a distance. He's willing that he becomes immersed in it. I want to close with just two verses from the Bible. The first is one that declares that that's what the Bible is all about. In Luke we read this, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that's the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's Jesus saying, I'm going to take you now on a journey. I'm going to start with Moses, very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then I'm going to work through all of the prophets of the Old Testament, and I'm going to show you, he says, that this is all about me. There was somebody after Jesus had died and come back to life and returned to heaven who found that out personally. He was from Ethiopia. He was a very high-powered chancellor involved in in, uh, Queen Candace's government at the highest of levels. Chancellor of the Exchequer would be a comparable sort of title given to him, he'd come down to Jerusalem to worship the God of the Hebrews. He knew that there was something more. He was leaving, I guess he might have been leaving, disappointed, because he wouldn't have been allowed into the temple, not into the very middle of the temple, because that was reserved for the Jews. He was leaving, and he was reading from Isaiah. He was reading it. He was trying to come to terms with what does all this mean. He was starting, if you like, with the prophets. He was looking back in the same way as Jesus had declared. And he was trying to understand what does all of this mean. 
There was a man named Philip. He was, he was an evangelist. He was somebody who traveled, sharing the message of the Bible. It so happened that God had placed him on the same road as this Ethiopian chancellor. Philip was walking alongside his carriage, and he could hear this chancellor reading. He said to him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I understand? Unless somebody explains it to me. So he got up into the carriage. He was invited up into the carriage. I mean, can you imagine it? Just picture the scene, if you would. Here's this kind of stately person, this leader of a government He's walking along, he's got an entourage of followers, he's surrounded by protectors, and this kind of peasant, ragged evangelist is walking alongside, chatting to him. And then next thing, the chancellor invites him up to talk to him. It must have been a bizarre sight. It must have been something that would have caused whispers to go through the entourage that were following. Do you know he's just invited this, this grubby evangelist to come up into the carriage to speak to him <laughs> what's he what's going on with this guy he says to him do you understand and then philip began i'll read a verse from acts chapter 8 and verse 35 philip began with that very passage of scripture in isaiah and told him the good news about jesus he started there. He started with Isaiah and he started to show, do you know what? This is not just any other book. And this Ethiopian chancellor, as Philip opens up that all of this is about Jesus, all of this is pointing to one man, one period of time, three years in the history of the world that changed the world. Suddenly, like that, the Ethiopian chancellor gets it. it li it's like it all falls into place. It's all about, yeah, get it now. It's all about Jesus. It's all about this unique character in history, unlike any other, who is no less than the Son of God. And when I piece it together like that, it makes sense. That's what this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, this Ethiopian chancellor discovered. He realized it. And his life was changed from that moment on. A bit further down the line, it got even more bizarre for those who were traveling along with, with him, his, his entourage. Because he turns to Philip and he says, what stops me from being baptized? Nothing, said Philip. So he stops the carriage, gets down into a river, and all of those who are in his entourage see this grubby evangelist take a hold of their chancellor and dip him in water to baptize him. <laughs> it must have been an amazing sight. I guess they must have gone back and had conversations. I would imagine that that probably sparked the church in Ethiopia. One man who comes to know Jesus... Why am I saying that? Why am I sharing this in closing? What I want to share is this. You know, this Ethiopian uh, 
Chancellor, something dropped into place with him. He couldn't understand a book, but he understood a man. And when he understood the man, things started to fall into place in the book. I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with the Bible, how does this all fit together? Don't start with the book and try to work up to Jesus. Start with an understanding of what the Bible claims about Jesus. And then understand, well, how does that, therefore, how does this bit of this book fall into place in the light of that? Understand the person, because after all, that's what it's pointing to. It's pointing to one man, three years of ministry, and yet three years that changed the history of this world. Why? Because those three years are relevant to us today. I've had the enormous privilege and pleasure down through these years of being able to share in conversations with people who've been reading this book and then to be able to see sometimes over time, sometimes almost immediately, where suddenly things drop into place. It's about Jesus, isn't it? And when, it, when you realize it's about Jesus, many of the questions, I can't believe the Bible because it's historically inaccurate. <laughs> well, you know, time will prove, eternity will prove that it, I believe that it's not historically inaccurate. But don't get bent out of shape about that at this point. See the man. See who is at the center. And the questions will start to work themselves out. I want to just say, we want to be helpful. Uh, and therefore, if you've got other things, other questions, other thoughts that you say, well, yeah, but I'm struggling with this, please, please take the opportunity to chat. Don't just walk away with it kind of bottled up. Keep on talking. Uh, and, and I want to encourage you to see Jesus right at the very heart of everything that is contained within the covers of this book. 